Amen. All right. Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're picking up right where we left off last week. Verse 19. Now, my friend Jeff Wash suggested that maybe we keep the theme of five at five, and I bring you five big rocks in the river, you might say, to take home with you. Well, I didn't get the PowerPoint done. Sort of got thrown off the rails with uh, the back thing. Uh, But I will starting next week. So tonight you'll just have to take my word for it and jot it down, all right? This one we're starting with in verse 19. The first big rock is John the Baptist. Now, you may not recognize it, but John has some echoes in these windows. You remember the windows, don't you? The windows on this side are New Testament windows. The windows on that side are Old Testament windows. And the windows at the back bring it all together. The Alpha Omega and the symbolism of the Trinity in the center window. That's how the room is laid out. In these windows over here, we have a couple of echoes of our friend uh, John the Baptist. And the most notable is the one with the lamb. We'll get to that one in just a moment. Let me read for us verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jewish Jews sent priests and Levites to him, from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? Where was John the Baptist? He was, according to later testimony, baptizing people at Anon near Selene. Now, do we know where that is? A verifiable maybe. You can take that to the bank, all right? Darren said, maybe we know. Uh, The place that we've located is just south of Jericho, just north of the Dead Sea, It is a wide spot in the road. There is no city there anymore. And they have built, this will shock you, a baptism facility right there where we think it might have been. This is a place where you can literally spit, if you can really do it well, into Jordan. You are that close to the neighbor nation. But it is a highly restricted area. They don't allow people to swim across the river, unlike some other countries. We'll talk about that another time. This is the testimony of John. Well, why did he need a testimony? He needed it because he was doing something extraordinary. He was teaching differently than the Pharisees. Let's talk about how the Pharisees cooperated for a moment, and that will hopefully bring into stark relief what John the Baptist is doing, and even more so what Jesus was doing. The authority of the Pharisees was not based on something they knew or something they were saying. It was based on an accumulation of history, accumulation of interpretation, an accumulation of this builds on that, builds on the next thing, builds on the last thing. This, this stacking, you might say, we call midrash. And the authority of the midrash is a little bit like precedent case law. For those of you who are, are in the legal, legal profession, precedent case law, meaning if, it's, if this case has been tried in this court and this was the decision they found, that sets a precedent for the next one and so on down the road. To break that precedent, oh, now wait a minute, it better be something important. John the Baptist is breaking that precedent. This is why the Pharisees are up in arms. And when I say up in arms, I mean up in arms. They were deeply concerned. Now, the Pharisees are not the only ones. There are other groups. You know their names. You just may not recognize them as an alternative group to the Pharisees. Well, what are they? There's the Sadducees. They set themselves apart from the Pharisees because they didn't believe in the resurrection. 
They believe that there was no resurrection, and as, as you might say, that's why they are sad, you see. <laughs> Oldest joke in the book. Uh, another group is the Zealots. The Zealots, most famously Simon, one of the disciples was a Zealot. Who were they? They were those who were going to take the kingdom from the Romans by force. They were revolutionaries. They were people who struck out at night. These three groups revolved primarily around Jerusalem, and that was the hub around which they resolved. But they were not the only one. There was a fourth group. We called them the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a, a different ethnic group. They lived just north of Jerusalem in a section of land that we still call Samaria. It has within it the, the Jezreel Valley, also known as the Megiddo Valley, and it stretches almost all the way up to uh, the Sea of Galilee. The Samaritans were not welcome in any of those other three groups, so some thought maybe John was with them. What was so wrong with the Samaritans? Well, in the incursion that took place in the, in the, uh, the couple of centuries before the time of Christ, there were many Jews who intermarried with, with uh, uh, the, the Gentiles. They were not welcome in the Gentile camp because they were half Jewish. They were not welcome in the Jewish camp because they were half Gentile. They needed somewhere to go, and they became what we know as the Samaritans. These, these things are the historical underpinnings for this question and the testimony that John needs. With all that as background, let me read it for you again. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites to him from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? They are not primarily asking for his name. They want to know which group he ascribes to. Who are you partnering with? Where is your greater constituency? And verse 20, and he confessed and did not deny, and this is what he confessed. Now, I want you to notice how John said that. It's as if our friend John the Baptist is pounding the pulpit. I'm not the Christ. You'll notice it says it three times. He confessed, he did not deny, he confessed. In other words, he's trying to underline and say, hey, I want to make sure you know this is not who I am. I am not the Christ. That's the real question they were asking. Are you the Messiah? Hmm, the Messiah. They had expected him from time immemorial. They didn't know when he would come, but they had their sketches, you might say, of what he would look like and what he would do. And although John didn't click every box, he clicked many of them, and that's why they're sending them to say, Who are you? I'm not the Christ, John says. And so they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? A little background. Go back and you'll see that the prophet Ezekiel says that there will come a reincarnation of sorts, a refreshing of the spirit of Elijah. Another one will have his spirit. Go to Mark chapter 6 and you'll see Jesus says, it's John. That's a, a sidetrack. But they, the, the Levites and the priests, they knew that prophecy, and that's why they're asking, are you Elijah? And he said, no. Are you the prophet? That's the other one that Ezekiel says. There's Elijah coming, there's a prophet coming, and there's a Messiah, a deliverer coming. And he answered, no. Then they asked him, who are you? Tell us so we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Here's the second big rock 
John's testimony about himself. I want you to see this in context of what he is offering. He's going to quote from Isaiah's prophecy. If you have a study Bible, it's probably marked off for you. Isaiah's prophecy, if your Bible is like mine, it has it in a different typeface. To illustrate for you, this is not uh, something that belongs just to John. This is something that he's quoting from. He said, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, make way, make the way of the, the Lord straight, as Isaiah the prophet said. He sees himself then, and this is the second big rock in the river, if you're jotting these down, John the Baptist, and the second big rock is John's identity, as he sees it. This is the element that John wants them to make, make sure they understand. His calling is not to himself. His calling is to the Lord and preparation for his coming. I, I want to ask you now, I want you to pretend that you're a first century person and you've seen these four groups that have interacted and how they've competed for your attention. And then John rises up and he offers you a repentance and he offers you a chance to be baptized in that new method. When they ask him who he is, this is the answer he gives. This would have been earth shattering. They would have said, <laughs> now, wait a minute. You can't quote from Isaiah and mean what you said. That's why verse, verse 26, 24 is what it is. And the messengers had been sent from the Pharisees. Don't just believe that as a parenthetical. The Pharisees, of the whole, whole lot of them, were the most scholarly, they were the most stringent, and they were the ones who would set the tone in some respects for the rest of everyone else's expectations. The messengers had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Here's the third big rock in the river. The authorities challenging our friend John. They want to press him into their mold. I don't know if you like sugar cookies at Christmas like I do, but I have a terrible habit. At Christmas time, I like to make cookies. Now, many of you are very kind and generous, and you bring cookies to my home and my office. That's awesome. I like my own. And you want to know why? Because I like to stamp them. I like to take the thing and put it down and make it in the shape that I want. You might say that's rather selfish and self-centered, Darren. Yes, isn't it, though? But I like it that way because then it's of my making, not someone else's. They're making the same mistake. You see, they aren't willing to consider that God might do it differently than their expectations indicate. They're trying to press him in to their own mold and say, hey, you've got to be what we expect if you are to be doing what you're doing. It begs a question, to whom is our greater allegiance due? Those who expect things of us or the God who sent us? You know the answer. Friends, I say that to you because I want us to recognize today the challenge that they are offering to John is the same one that we will be challenged with as well. In the days coming, if they're not already here, 
there will be those who will say, who are you to speak for the Lord? Who are you to say that this is what the word of the Lord is? What is this Bible to proclaim that it is uniquely true? We see these hints already. I believe they will increase in regularity and in intensity. The most glaring of this lately is the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. I don't want to get into the politics of it, but let's just pause here long enough to say that Bill is inversely named. It is a respect for the new definition of marriage, not your understanding of it. They're wanting to turn the Bible inside out in order that it might meet their agenda. Who are you then? Why are you doing these things? Just in time for the fourth big rock, John's answer. I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. I want you to see one. That word one there, it should be capitalized. It's a proper noun in this context. It stands apart in the tense of the Greek and causes us to say, whoa, I wasn't expecting that there. It jumps off at you and causes you to say, he is changing this on purpose. Stands one. John's identification is the fourth big rock. John's identification, not of himself, not of the groups, but of the one coming. There is one coming, and he stands now among you. Verse 27, it is he who comes after me, of whom I am not worthy to even untie the strap of his sandals. So this identification of the one that's coming, it is of one whom John sees as far greater than himself. We can be grateful for that. Verse 26, I'm sorry, 28. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing people. And now the fifth rock. John identifying Jesus. And now we're back to the window. The next day, John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he in behalf of whom I said, after me is coming a man who has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. And I did not recognize him so that he'd be revealed to Israel. I came baptizing in water. Well, let's pause for a moment and unpack this. The window that we have is reflective of verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in our context, we would no doubt pull out our smartphone and you can snap a picture of something using Google Image and it will kick up all the other things that are like what you're seeing, including people. You want to find out who your doppelganger is, who your natural double is, then take a picture of yourself and plug it into Google Images. It will pull up all the people that Google thinks look like, looks like you. John here is saying, this one is different than all the others. It was not unusual to see lambs that belonged to God in Jerusalem. He doesn't say it that way, though. The Lamb of God, and if your Bible did not capitalize Lamb, then please correct that now, who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the sins of the people were dealt with 
Passover. They would lay hands on the sacrificial animal and one scapegoat would be led away and one that would be sacrificed. These, these moments were good for the Jewish people, but this lamb, John says, will take away the sin of the world. This is cataclysmic. It is a big change from what we expected. Not only that, this is he on behalf of whom I said after me is coming a man who has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. The patriarchal system that John was steeped in and all those listening to him more than likely would have been in view. The patriarchal system meaning seniority is everything. I didn't recognize him, John says, but so that he be revealed in Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John testified, saying, I've seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. And he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water and said to me, He upon you, whom you see the, the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. This, the fifth big rock, John's testimony about Jesus, sets the table for what comes next. Now, we won't jump off into that tonight. But the section that follows, verses uh, 35 through the end of the chapter, it begins the ministry of Jesus. Although not the public ministry, that has to wait till chapter 2, but it absolutely begins the ministry of Jesus as his first two disciples, and by extension a third one, join him in his journey. You might say that everything up to verse 34 has been preparing us theologically. First 18 verses telling us about who Jesus was, the next verses telling us about John the Baptist and his testimony regarding Jesus, as well as his clarifying remark about his own identity. Now in verse 35, Jesus, Jesus walking in. Walking into the center stage. A weaker man than John the Baptist might have said, hey, well, what's wrong with me? Why can't I have that role? After all, I'm older. I'm grateful that he didn't struggled with that. Instead, he simply revealed himself to be who God had called him to be, the one who would come and prepare the way. It causes me to ask a question and is one that each of us must answer for ourselves. What is it that God has called us to do? And should it not meet our preferences are we willing to surrender our preferences in favor of God's calling? My prayer is that the answer will be yes. Yes, I am willing. I look back at the crossroads that came in my life and realize that God's hand was on all of them. You can do the same, I'm sure. We see that in our rearview mirror. But what if we have to find it out the windshield what if we're looking out there how will we recognize it like John the Baptist let us lean in to the spirit of God 
and the whisper that he will provide into our hearts to help us know. Let me pray for us and then we'll begin our time of church conference. We're eternally grateful, Lord Jesus, for the wisdom that we see in our friend John. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you that you called him, you commissioned him, and he was willing to accept that role. I pray tonight, Lord, that we would be likewise ready to serve. I ask, Lord Jesus, for the out the windshield view that we all struggle with, finding your spirit, not just when we see it behind us, yes, I see how you led me there, but rather that you would help us to see it in advance. Not like prophets, but people that are trusting you with one step at a time. I know, Lord Jesus, there are many who are struggling with this very question. My prayer is that you would, with your mercy and wisdom, provide just the right comfort. Guide us now, Lord Jesus, in this time of church conference. Let us use the resources you have blessed us with well. And thank you, Lord Jesus, in advance for what you will do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dr. Jolly.